Welcome to the Visionaries Podcast, sponsored by Alchemy. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. The Visionaries Podcast shines a light on financial institutions at the cutting edge of digital transformation, providing you with the tips and tricks to elevate your digital game. When consumers are looking to find the best rates offered on savings account, they usually use Google and come up with NerdWallet or Bankrate.com. The problem is that this search results are biased, influenced by advertising and affiliate dollars. To respond to the need for a more unbiased source of the best savings rates nationwide, Seattle Bank created CD Valet. This offering allows consumers to search for the best rates as well as being able to use filters to meet their individual savings goals. My guest is John Blizzard, President and CEO of the $800 million Seattle Bank. We discuss how a community bank can support an innovative culture across an organization, making an impact well beyond geographic boundaries. So, John, before we dig into what's happened to Seattle Bank, can you share with our audience a little bit about your career background and how your various roles may have prepared you for the journey that you're on today? Thanks, Jim. Sure. Yeah, I have uh, various financial services areas I've worked in in banking and have been very interesting. They started out as a teller, like so many people in banking did, right? Working the teller line. I don't even think they call it a teller line, most banks anymore. But did that for Credit Union Oklahoma and eventually became a consumer lending officer and did boat loans and car loans and HELOCs and credit cards and all that fun stuff and eventually became the manager of that area. And then, like I noted, I was in Oklahoma and decided, hey, it's time to go west. So 30 years ago, I came to Seattle and my buddy got me a job at a mortgage company and uh, Seattle Mortgage Company is owned by Seattle Bank. That's our predecessor firm. And I worked there for seven years doing the mortgage banking thing in the 90s, which was a ton of fun. A lot happening back then and uh, just great time. But then I was like, hey, I want to get more into the finance part of the business. And so I had this opportunity to go to the Federal Home Loan Bank of Seattle. And uh, the FHLBs, a lot of people don't know a ton about the FHLBs. But they loan money to the banking system. Been in the press a little bit here recently. Worked there with a number of banks, credit unions, and eventually became the chief banking officer there in charge of all of our lending to 400 financial institutions from the very biggest to the smallest. And that was an unbelievable experience, Jim, to work with a lot of different financial institutions with a lot of different strategies, some commercial, some consumer, some mortgage focused, some others, and uh, work with probably 100 CFOs, if not more, during that time and deep into interest rate risk management and ALM and all that good stuff. And so that was, uh, that was just a, a tremendous experience to look inside banking as a business and see how these different banks operated, right? And some, some as we saw in the great financial crisis, took more risks than they should have. And, uh, and we also, even before that, we had, you know, hedging blow up at different banks and stuff around interest rate risk management. And, um, and I saw great managers and great leaders. And so that was a really tremendous experience that I don't think a lot of people have the opportunity to have um, to get, really see inside banking. And so did that and then uh, transitioned from there to, to get back on the, on the main street and uh, worked for, ran a bank for a couple of years out of Idaho and then got pulled back to Seattle Bank and uh, in 2014, been here ever since. Uh, again, I was here when it was a mortgage company for seven years. And so my second stint here and I would say, hey, in terms of how that's impacted me, first of all, very diverse areas, right, of banking, 
and financial services and uh, learned a great deal from great managers and terrible managers. By the way, you learn as much from the terrible managers as the good ones. Um, and just seeing inside was always super interested in kind of, hey, how can we tweak our products? How can we be more relevant to customers in all those settings? So I was always pushing the envelope to do new things and different things. So uh, it's kind of always been in the blood. It's funny because in my background, I also started in a management training program. So I started as a teller, moved up to manager, assistant manager, consumer loan officer, then in the marketing department of a, a fairly large financial institution. But since that experience in banking, when I served banks and in the agency side, I got to see all kinds of things about how financial institutions worked, what strategies worked, what didn't work, what leadership styles worked, what didn't work. And working for the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, it's very interesting because, as you said, you got to see all kinds of things. You got to see how people manage risk, how people's overall business strategies differed, how much financial institutions were the same, and how organizations could differentiate themselves. And so really, when you got back into, as you call it, mainstream banking, Main Street Banking, it really gave you an opportunity to say, okay, I got to test out some of these ideas I've had, but still not forget about the foundations of banking, which I think when we look at fintech firms, when we look at small, very fluid, agile organizations, it gets down to leadership, but it also gets down to, do you still understand the basics of banking? You, you can't let that go between risk management to leadership styles. And a lot of people say, you know, the, the thing that plays out the most importantly today is what kind of leader are you going to be? Because at the end of the day, the success or failure is going to fall on your shoulders. You know, one, one of the things we opened this whole podcast with was the fact that you, you've done a very interesting innovation with something called the CD Valet, which really looks at offering a, a CD marketplace for institutions across the country. So what was your vision when you were building this and why you extended beyond what I'd call traditional offerings? Um, what was the rationale for creating the CD shopping tool that didn't have a really typical revenue model? Well, do we have two hours, Jim, to talk about this topic? Because uh, <laughs> this is near and dear to my heart and uh, you know something we are very excited about, having a ton of fun with. And, and engage with because the consumer experience out there sucks. It's terrible. We have a broken market. Uh, so many things you can go online and find uh, what you're looking for, your options pretty easily to shop, right? Um, but lo and behold, the CD market is really not great for buyers, those who invest in CDs. And it's really not great for sellers, except for the very largest sellers. So your community banks and credit unions have a very difficult, very expensive time competing for CDs. And there's reasons for that um, that are pretty interesting. But we totally stumbled into this market and uh, just realized, first of all, there's just a huge consumer here that invests a lot of money in CDs. It could be one bank or multiple banks. And uh, that was an early finding of ours, kind of being naive in this business uh, going back almost 10 years ago, for me anyway. And uh, I was like, wow. And these are really like millionaire next door types. These are not folks that invest a ton in equity. They're very conservative, but they save a lot of money. They are savers. And the banking industry does not serve those savers very well. Of course, we all have savings accounts and money market and checking accounts and, and CDs, but we used to, Jim, call it hot money as a very negative that these, these great savers somehow were bad because you, know, you gave them a, um, a decent rate on their money. We just view that totally different. Like, how can we serve that customer base 
And the reality was we go online, you can't find all the rates in one place very easily at all. So we had customers shopping all over the place online to try to find good deals. And then the, uh, the, the marketplaces that exist and existed back then didn't even pick us up. Tim, we had one of the best rates in the country. One of our fellow banks that we know had a, had a different term that was also one of the best rates in the country. This goes back when we had some accelerated growth. Didn't even show up on the marketplaces. So nobody would even know we offered that other than our nice little ad in the newspaper, right? And so we're like, what the heck? We're not even showing up on some of the big marketplaces. It's like, because we are not, their goal is not to show you the whole market. Their goal is to sell you on clicking uh, ads. Where, where's for, the money? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so I kind of talk, I, I kind of view those as first generation marketplaces and consumers know they're terrible. And, but they don't know what they're missing, right? Unless there's an alternative. So let me give an example of uh, CD Ballet versus like Bank Rate, for example. This is a couple of weeks ago. And uh, rates, CD rates, individual CDs of 5% or more. And on Bank Rate, it was like 17 individual CDs. You know how many we had on CD Ballet, Jim? No. How many? Over 225 CDs. Oh my gosh. So more than 10 times as many. And I think it's even higher today. Well, that's from a whole bunch of community financial institutions that would love to do business, but the word does not get out. We've even had phenomenal rates on there of like 6%. Have you seen a 6% CD? No. In fact, we were just talking about the fact that you found, I think, seven and th- or five and three quarters. And so now I got to up that. So, yeah. That's right. We had a couple that were 6% for a while. But the reality is the, the way the market works today is if you're a relatively small or even medium-sized bank, you can do the old school newspaper. But let's face it, that audience is shrinking. But if you want to compete digitally, good luck. It is ultra expensive. It is uh, very challenging. And you're going to have a hard time winning business because you have very sophisticated players. These marketplace providers are superb at uh, managing that market and, and winning you know, and buying their way into the highest ratings on Google. Same with your, you know, your uh, big internet banks. So you just have a huge disconnect um, between the two. So now through CD Ballet, we offer rates from 2,500 institutions and 17,000 different rates we update weekly. 17,000, that's just CD rates of financial institutions around the country. It's bar none the best you know, database anywhere in the country. And um, so that's phenomenal. So we want to help the financial institutions get exposure because a lot we know from the CD customers, we're in this business every day. We know that those CD customers, a lot of them would prefer to do business locally. They just don't know about that great deal locally. And, and they can't, they go online, they really don't find it unless they know what institution to pull up. We, and we even looked at advertising or, or trying to be on these uh, big marketplaces. There was no interest. They're not built for us. Uh, the, the cost was astronomical um, if you could even get on there. So really, we're blocked out. So we're, we're going to team up with other community institutions that want to uh, kind of disrupt this business from within a little bit and uh, deliver something better to consumers. Okay. So back when I was a banker in marketing, I had to do shopping studies on a weekly basis to find out what the deposit and lending rates were for my competition. That was not an easy process. How in the world do you collect 2,500 organizations' rates weekly across the country? 
Yeah, so we have people who do it daily. We don't have anybody doing it all day because nobody can do that, right? Uh, but uh, it's a combination of technology and, and great people and systems and processes. And so it's pretty remarkable what we've built. We started with five states. And over a few months, we managed to move that to the, the whole country. And so it is a process. We've got some great technology in there, but we're not doing screen scraping. That does not work. Um, and some of those things, some of those fancy ways. So we do have human beings uh, helping ensure quality and that we get those rates. Okay. So the obvious question is, what's your why? Why are you doing this? I, I understand you're trying to serve the customer, but there's got to be a deeper why. Well, first of all, there's a lot of financial institutions just like us that were having to spend a lot of money to compete. They weren't able to raise as many CDs as they, they wanted to, uh, as fast as they wanted to, right? So we would eventually win enough business, even though we had great rates, um, but it just took took longer than it should for an efficient market in 2023 with the internet and iPhone, right? This is just taking too long. So you know, we really think there's a way to benefit ourselves and everybody else. We take the funnel of Seattle Bank's current customers of CDs that are a few thousand, and we expand that to be hundreds of thousand potential customers, maybe millions. You know, we're going to get our, our our piece of that business. So making the funnel way bigger is going to serve us long term. We can disrupt from within. We are tiny relative to the overall market. Jim, do you know how big the retail CD market is? Not a clue. It's about one and a half trillion dollars. And so people don't realize this is as big as the auto loan market, the student loan market, the credit card market. This is a this is a massive market, and that's retail. You also then have broker. You also have you know uh, brokered CDs, which is on top of that. And so you just have a massive market. The bankers have really shunned for years because it was high cost funds, right? And so they didn't. They've never liked this business uh, for the most part um, because it's considered high cost funds hot money and all those things, which made us love this business. And we've been basically uh, looking and working on this for seven years. We're just now, you know, really getting the market nationwide. But our first like business plan on this was 2017. We did a pilot with our customers over COVID. And so we've been committed to this for a long time. It is a very big market that we can make work way better for consumers and financial institutions. So it really makes it so that you can really make your funding model even more efficient because by having this seamless platform, you can then build a funding model that's going to cost you less because you have a, a wider audience that you can reach, but more more effectively make it very efficient where you can drop your overall cost fund, but you can manage it on a on a moment by moment basis if you have to. You can be the biggest and best, but you're also going to get a you're going to be able to build a model that says, okay, if we fall in the number 25 to number 50, we're going to generate this much a week, correct? Yeah, well, a couple points. Uh, one, when you talked about, hey, when when you were uh, earlier in your career and you would go do rate surveys and stuff, guess what? Everybody has people doing that. Every single bank credit union has people on their team doing this. We have amazing amount of data on the market, on consumer behavior in this space. The data we have is ridiculous. Uh, and that's going to give us tremendous insights to help those that are in, involved in CD Ballet and just knowing what's going on in that market. Um, so yeah, so that's that's really important to us. Well, it's just the fact that this makes it so that you can actually lower your cost of funds because you have a wider audience of who you're hitting with the rates that you set, correct? I mean, effectively. Yeah, so if you think about it, a really inefficient market, when it becomes more efficient, the high rate payers pay less, the low rate payers pay more. For us, we're a higher rate payer. So I'm like, hey, we, it does us zero harm. Actually, over the long term, it's going to bring our costs down. 
And so we think, you know, the ability to raise that funding and the CD business is going to be much more dynamic. And so a banker credit union that wants to raise 50 million in CDs should be able to do it a lot faster, right? If you have a really attractive, say you do an 18 month term, 13 month term, bump CD, whatever, you make it really attractive to those consumers. And uh, maybe it's just in your geography or something. Um, you should be able to raise your funding very fast and not have to drag that out over months and months. If we bring that audience to you, you, you ought to be able to do that. So that's, you know, that is going to change the dynamic and help certainly the, the financial institutions with their funding. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast, Alchemy Technology. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Welcome back to the Fissionaries Podcast, sponsored by Alchemy Technology. Well, as I was kicking the tire to CD Valet, I also noticed, and I don't know how this compares to the other platforms, but it seemed like it was a much more consumer-friendly platform if I had a a savings goal. So let's say I had uh, $1 million to save, but I wanted to have it at different terms. You provide a lot of tools to get the consumer to where they want to go efficiently, don't you? We do. We have a portfolio tool where you can put all your CDs in and, and watch those uh, in, in one place and, and the maturities and so forth. Uh, we also have a refi tool. Um, think about this. How many people do you think missed out on refinancing their house during COVID and rates are really low? That'd be, <laughs> that'd be yep. a, a few, but not many missed out on getting the, the low rates on uh, refinancing their house. People are very accustomed to refinancing their house. They're not on the CD front where rates rise rapidly like this. There is so much money at the big banks getting paid 20 basis points. Even if it's locked in for two years and just rolled over, pay the 90 day penalty, which would be nothing and put it in a 5% CD. It's a no brainer market to refi hundreds of billions of CDs out there and put money in people's pockets. You become a CD concierge as well that way. Yeah, there's just so many ways we can deliver value to customers. And it's an easy product to understand. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So obviously, there's been a lot of discussion recently around risk management and the ability to match maturities against deposits and loans. There's also been a lot of discussion around deposit insurance. How do you deal with those consumers around the $250,000 limit? Well, first of all, CD Valet and CDs in general, the CD market is is definitely gotten the attention of bankers who are like, hey, that's term funding. They're almost always FDIC insured. That is great funding on the balance sheet from that perspective. Um, at Seattle Bank, we've always worked. We, ha- we have businesses, high net worth individuals in our private banking area, and we've worked for a long time in maximizing their insurance on FDIC, you know, through titling. A lot of people don't know, hey, if you have a couple... Uh, you might be able to get $2 million of insurance. And so we've done that forever. So that's just normal course stuff. And then uh, with com- bigger commercial clients that have a lot of cash, we've always worked with the uh, Intrify and their ICS and CDRs products to get insurance on up to $150 million. And uh, so we would, we would frequently do that. And certainly we got more of that from the recent 
kind of scares with SVB and so forth. But in general, we were just built for that. So that was, we did a lot of work in, in the most recent time here to help more customers navigate that. But we're 80% insured deposits. It's a very high number relative to the industry. And that's because we already, we already cared about our customers and, and uh, helped them navigate insurance even before all this, this chaos. I will say, Jim, we're up 16% in the quarter on deposits, retail deposits. That's not annualized. That's in the quarter. And, uh, you know, and so I think our business model of being a higher rate payer and being very, you mentioned kind of interest rate risk uh, and risk management. It's not just the deposit side, it's what you do with the money. And I can't tell you how many times I had, uh, you know, lenders talking about a three and a half percent or 4% multifamily loan that the different banks were competing on. And like, hey, we're just not going to be in that market. Uh, we got to find other, you know, other deals where we can add value and get paid because at the bottom end of the market, when you book so many assets, either buying investments or booking loans, that's when you got to be disciplined when it's in the good times. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, the efficiency of what you do, the digital world provides you an amazing capability to build these efficiencies to make it so that you can match perfectly if, if you do it digitally. Um, you can shop digitally, you, as you're doing with CD Valet. You know, CD Valet had a starting point, and that starting point really goes back to building a culture of innovation. You, you had to have somebody or a group of people that said, we're going to do this differently. You know, traditional financial institutions talk about building a culture that supports innovation and transformation. Yet, as I find, very few organizations go beyond talking to talk. They have a hard time walking the walk because it means doing banking different. It means changing. How have you as a leader set the platform for your organization to think outside the box, to test new ideas? You know, you mentioned you in our pre-call that you've gone through a major core transformation, core conversion. That is innovation because it means taking a big commitment to something that's beyond the norm. How do you personally set the stage for this? Well, I think it first starts with like, hey, who are, who's your uh, who's your owners or whether you're public or private and your board? And what was the premise that you came in the organization under? Right. And so uh, we're privately owned, which is a great benefit these particular days with the crazy stock market. But we have a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners that uh, totally up for us doing something different. Uh, we also had a bank that was recapitalized. So there was kind of a fresh start. So I came in after the uh, years of some cleanup that happened. So it was really a, a great environment for me to come in and say, hey, we got to get out of the branches. We got to be digital. We got to be focused on some larger accounts. And we got we to gotta find a way to add value through technology and great people. And so, you know, we pursued that and had total support of our board and shareholders, um, which has been key. But then the implementation of that is, it, hey, it's all through who you hire, what the expectations are, what's your goals, what's your incentive plan. Um, hey, we're all under the same incentive plan. I have the same plan as our folks that take care of customers on the front line. In terms, we have the exact same goals. And so um, so we don't get, you know, sometimes companies just get themselves all in knots by uh, confusing the message for their teams, even in incentive plans and so forth. And so, hey, we need to, this is banking. There's tons of risk, Jim. And if we need to pull the plug and not do loans or not do a project because there's too much risk, we're just going to do it. We don't need anybody confused. Uh, that goes against their personal goals, right? 
you know, we really have a collaborative culture here. It's very important in our hiring. We don't have a lot of alphas running around that want to own the place and uh, be a winner at the expense of a fellow employee. You know, I think we've all been in those environments where you, you, you have uh, competing employees. We have an extremely collaborative group and um, they just they just feed off each other. It's amazing. And probably relative to banks our size, we hire kind of a, a higher cost uh, employee that does more complex stuff. Um, so it's been a ton of fun. Hey, it's work every day. We're in the risk management business. You know, it's also about deciding what you're not going to do and not going to pursue so you can be focused on what's really valuable. You know, it's interesting. You say risk management and a lot of organizations talk about risk management, but really under the surface, it's risk avoidance. I mean, you've seen in banking, you saw at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board that there are some organizations that no matter what goes on in the marketplace, they won't take risk, which is not a good business model because it's about managing risk, not avoiding all risk. How do you balance that as an organization? How do you balance risk management versus risk avoidance in things such as the way you fund things? But beyond that, in the type of technologies you implement and the type of core conversion you've done, how do you manage those things? Yeah, well, hey, you just have to understand, you know, banks are in the risk management business. Uh, First and foremost, we have lots of risks everywhere, you know, credit risk, interest rate risk, operations risk. Um, It's uh, regulatory risk, all sorts of stuff. And that is a huge part of culture too, right? Is that risk. We're very transparent all the way around about any risk that we're taking or see. And we are constantly improving our operations and everything because we're constantly identifying areas where we can do better. It's not about, hey, we're perfect. We don't need to work on anything. We are constantly working to be better because this is a complicated business uh, with a lot of risk. You know, I would, I would say, uh, hey, you got to have a tolerance that you're going to be wrong, uh, especially on innovative stuff. Hey, some stuff's going to work, some stuff's not. If it doesn't work, it's on me. No problem. And uh, nobody's getting fired over something not working. Everybody's got to do their job, of course. But um, and, and I tell our team, like, hey, I have no idea if this product is going to be a grand slam or, or a dud. We're going to do it. And we think it's a really good idea and it serves customers well. That's worked really well for us that we and we have, you know, we've done a lot of innovation and we've taken the hard steps to get there with the core conversion, which uh, uh, you mentioned just the hardest thing you can do in banking is convert your core technology stack. And that's just been transformative for us, but a hell of a lot of work by the team. Uh, but risk management's just in our blood. Like, hey, at the low, low end of the market, when rates were in COVID, we took out a bunch, uh, you know, a small amount. We should have done more probably. Uh, some brokered CDs at sub 1% money. That looks pretty cheap right now. And, uh, you know, uh, just a hedging strategy of interest risk, right? So, we, we never think we're smart enough to know the future exactly. So we're always looking, how can we you know, add another layer of hedging or risk management? We discussed the fact you've done a core conversion. You had to have partners that help you implement the CD Valet. How do you select what technologies to implement? And how, more importantly, how do you select third-party partners and, and collaborators that work you work with? How do you, how do you select who those are going to be? For, you know, first is just identifying those that are out in the marketplace and who's offering what. So we're active in the fintech uh, conferences and uh, out in the environment, know a lot of people. And, and so we generally are well aware or can find out through a few calls, including maybe you, Jim, uh, like who's offering this particular service and really vetting them. We have a long experience in vetting third parties. It's huge to all banks. Um, and we've learned in the, you know, the last five, 10 years working on different things that worked and some that didn't. 
uh, about the kind of partners we need. And they have to be super focused on their, they're in the banking business and compliance and risk management on their end. Cybersecurity is huge and PII and all those things are, are key. Uh, and then they got to have great technology that works and we got to be able to plug it in and monitor it and oversee the vendor, if you will, the partner that we're working with. We saw a lot of, there was a lot, especially in the last five years, there was a lot of not ready to be primetime companies out there. Fintechs, we love all the entrepreneurs, so don't get me wrong. Uh, we love what they're trying to do out there, but a lot of more features, not companies. And, um, you know, we, we have to work with real co companies. Um, they can be small, but they have to have a real, you know, eye towards compliance and risk management. And um, we, we've been, we found some great partners. So what innovation beyond CD Valet have you introduced to, to Seattle Bank that is making digital banking better for consumers? and for small businesses and for entrepreneurs? Yeah, so some of the things we've done is, uh, hey, we implemented the early pay for our, our customers that have their paychecks you know, deposited here. So we did that, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, we uh, implemented a personal line of credit. So if you're a high credit worthy customer and have a certain kind of checking account, a digital checking account with us, you can get a personal line of credit, it could be $100,000. And so we're one of very few banks in the country that offer that. It's actually technically really difficult to implement that. And so our team got that done. Um, and again, that's maybe, I don't know, four or five banks in the country even offer that. Um, so we got that done last year. And so, um, yeah, and those are the things just on the traditional side of the business. So personalized credit, do you, do you offer that for every new checking account customer? Or how do you offer that? Yeah, if they qualify, yeah, if they have our digital direct account and they qualify, it's down. And by the matter of fact, I think ours goes down to the lowest level that anybody offers it down to $15,000 uh, in size. So we try to serve as broad a market as possible with that product. And uh, and uh, that's that's been a pretty cool thing to do. Really hard. All this stuff's hard, right? And there's the orchestration of your tech. But the great thing about our core conversion and being cloud-based, API-enabled, and having a partner uh, um, that lets us hook in with third parties, it's its pretty cool that we can make those things happen, given our size. It, it's interesting because I, I worked with a, a bank in Poland, gosh, it got me seven, maybe 10 years ago now, that built a small personal loan for everybody who opened an account. So basically they said, you know, unless the person looks like they are completely non-credit worthy, which why did we open a checking account for them? They put a, an amount on the person's mobile banking app that they could tap into at any time. I believe it was as low as $100. But the reality was they realized that was demotrician because if a customer was ready to want to close their account, they'd try to go someplace else and get the same line of credit and nobody would offer it to them. And so all of a sudden they continually see this. So your your line of credit idea is it's extraordinarily powerful, especially with the bigger deposits that you have. And it's a cross-selling tool. You're, you're dealing with as you mentioned earlier, some people with a lot of money and between the CDs and with the checking account and now with the line of credit, it really provides a real nice portfolio of services that all play off of each other, obviously. When you're trying to innovate, do you have any preference for a build versus buy mentality versus a partner mentality? Uh, we really are. Uh, we're builders. We like to do stuff ourselves, maybe to an extreme sometimes. We're not big on hiring consultants and doing those things. We like to be hands on. Uh, we love to partner with awesome uh, third parties. Uh, we're just not in the acquiring game. That's a that's a um, we, we would if the right situation came along. 
the buy game. Um, it's just, you know, it's never as easy as the uh, financial engineers make it sound, right? Oh, you just buy this thing and plug it in. And it's like, well, you got culture, you got technology, you got all sorts of stuff, people you got to deal with. And so, yeah, so we're a, we're a building partner shop. So it's clear that your organization has a challenger mindset, that you're always trying to find those avenues of opportunity that are out there uh, in the consumer market, in the small business market, but just overall saying, you know, we're going to challenge what's traditional, what we consider traditional banking. How do you keep up with market changes and the expectations of the marketplace? And how do you keep employees in the loop? How do you keep them aware of what's going on around them to keep that mentality in their minds? And how do you hire for that? You mentioned a little bit about the hiring aspect, but you know, I know some of your employees and obviously you're, you're searching to hire the people that have the same mindset that your organization is trying to have. Yeah, Devlin, we've hired some great talent. Um, I will say, hey, one thing, we came back to the office very quickly. The stuff we do is hard. It requires a lot of collaboration. We are back mostly in the office. And by the way, we, we took down new space in downtown Seattle in the middle of COVID and got beautiful space that uh, is, is just uh, phenomenal for employees to work from and views. And we got a great deal, which is always important. So, um, so creating that environment. We're small. Uh, we're, we're mostly all here. Uh, we have all employee meetings once a once a uh, once a month. We're very transparent. We're private, so we can be like extremely transparent with our team, and that seems to work really well for us to do it that way. So, yeah, the people front. Uh, we have lots and lots of opportunities to. After COVID being pretty strange hiring environment, we are seeing a lot of talent opportunity right now. Of course, on the West Coast, you've just seen some big bank struggle. So, um, we we yeah, that's going to go very well for us for a while. But hey, folks mainly want to be here doing cool stuff, right? And when you tell your story, I mean, that's how I found out about you. When you tell your story, it's intriguing because it's it's not the way you view banking. It's not. It's doing something different. I mean, again, the CD Valet, I'm, I'm saying, geez, this is something that's for the marketplace. Yes, it serves your individual organization's you know, needs, but it's a completely different way of looking at how to get to the finish line, something that most institutions could never put together. It's, it's just, it's bigger than a bread box. As you look to the next one to three years, what are some of the aspirations, some of the things that you want to see happen at Seattle Bank without giving away too many secrets, but what what is really things that are on your to-do list? You know, really, I just look at, hey, are we, are we delivering value to customers? And maybe it's multiple segments. And are we doing a really good job of that through our partner banking, through CD Valet, through our boutique bank? And how does that look? Do we have like really happy customers? Are we operating a business that's sustainable and keep growing that business over time? There's a lot of things you can do that are not sustainable in banking if you give the farm away, right? But are we doing things sustainable that, and have really happy clients and uh, have something we can grow? And that's really how I look at it. I'm not looking at a certain amount of growth rate or any of those things. It's like, hey, are you relevant to a big to a certain uh, customer group? That's what really matters. If you're, if you as a financial institution are really relevant and uh, can find a way to do that and get compensated appropriately to stay in business, that's pretty good. That's pretty good stuff. What keeps you up at night? What challenges your vision? Well, Jim, I have four teenage boys, so uh, <laughs> I got I got a million reasons to be up all at night. Uh, uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, I think for for me and a lot of folks in banking, the, the cybersecurity stuff is a, it's just always top of mind. Um, yeah. And then I just I care about our people and make sure that they're, uh, you know, they're doing well and uh, working well together. And 
uh, think a lot about our people. And finally, you know, as you mentioned, you spent a good amount of time at the Federal Home Loan Bank Board where you really got to see a lot of different organizations, a lot of leaders, a lot of strategy, a lot of business models. It also gives you an opportunity to be kind of like a, like a, a visionary to a degree to those organizations that continue to do things as they've always done them. What recommendations would you give banks and credit unions as they attempt to become more future ready? Um, well, great, great question. I do think of myself more of a student than a teacher, Jim. So uh, I'm usually that's not. Always, that's, always, that's always going to help. Exactly. Uh, I'm not usually the one out there uh, saying I know it all or anything. But uh, if I were to give some advice in that front would be, you know, hey, don't chase the fads. There's a lot of fads, especially around technology. And um, just find where you can add real value. I mean, community banks and, and credit unions can find these niches that are not well served that the big banks just can't operate in for lots of reasons and just go find those and do something awesome for those customers and be relevant and, uh, and you'll do great. Just be careful of the fads because they, there's a lot of hype around the latest and greatest, whatever. You know, it's, it's interesting too, John, you, you mentioned it just in passing, but it really stuck in my mind that, that your organization also, as you try a lot of new things, you're not afraid to fail. You, you said yourself, You'll take that upon yourself. I'll take the blame. But bottom line is organizations sometimes overthink things so much to try to make sure that they don't fail, that a lot of great ideas get left on the cutting room floor, as they would say in the past. But I think it, it's you know another, another thing that organizations should look at if they look at your organization is not everything has been a success, but that doesn't mean we don't want to do it. And you're not afraid to turn it off. We had a conversation a few weeks ago with uh, um, Coastal Community Bank, and and I think what was interesting is they also said, we don't succeed every time, but we're not afraid to fail. Uh, we, we try to avoid it, but we are not afraid to turn something off if it's not working. That's a really big leap from what I would consider to be traditional banking, and certainly the banking that you saw when you were a teller, I'm sure. In fact, as a teller... If I remember correctly, when I was a teller, you, you had a better likelihood of getting fired, not by not selling, but by not balancing. And that was to the penny. And while you weren't allowed to do it, you always had a little change on the side so you could get out of the branch, knowing that maybe two days from now, you're going to balance it the other way for a couple of dollars. But boy, I'll tell you, it, it, that is the mentality that you go, you don't, you don't think that a, an Apple or an Amazon or a Fairmont Hotel is saying, geez, if you make a small mistake, you're not going to be able to leave the office that day. You know, it's, it's just crazy. But John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And you really did provide a lot of insight into a small community bank that's doing just amazing things, punching above your weight. So I really appreciate the time you spent. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Visionaries podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you can use to help elevate your digital game. If you enjoyed this episode and like to help support the podcast, please share with others around you, post it on social media, or just leave a thumbs up and a comment. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hassage, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, an innovative culture is not defined by the size of the organization, but by the willingness of leadership to embrace change and take risks. Mm-hmm.